Okay, well now, uh, here we are. Last week, uh, God created the universe. Uh, out of nothing, it was very good, and he created it to glorify himself. That's the summary. We uh, talked about the fact that God created the universe out of nothing. Um, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There was nothing before God created it. And then, because God created it, there's no matter that is eternal. It's all, everything that we see is a result of God's creative work and then his sustaining work. And it means, point C, that the universe has meaning and purpose. The, the uh, material universe is not inherently evil, but it's to be used wisely. Um, and, and then uh, we talked about the creation of the spiritual universe, angels, seraphim, all of that. That also God made. It wasn't all there. And then the direct creation of Adam and Eve. He uh, made Adam from the dust of the ground, made Eve from a rib from Adam's side. Creation, and that, that we talked about last week as well. Creation is distinct from God, yet always dependent on God. And this sets the biblical picture in contrast to many non-Christian views. God is transcendent, he's far above creation, but he's also imminent, he's active in the creation. And non-Christian religions don't have that. They, they can go to a materialism that says, uh, people can, non-Christians can adopt materialism that says that... Um, uh, there is no God, and all that exists is the material universe. Or people can go to pantheism and kind of worship trees and plants and animals or make images of them and worship them and think that God is the creation or is in the cre is, uh, is just uh, without a distinct personality. Or you can go to dualism, say that the universe and God, good and evil, they've always competed, they've always been. God did it, it's just struggling against God, and that leads you, you don't know who's going to win. Dualism, or you, or you have deism. God created the world long ago, but he's very distant from it. He's not involved in it. The biblical picture is different from all of those. The biblical picture has God creating the universe out of nothing, but always involved in it and regularly involved in it. So he's above it all. He's transcendent, and he's involved in it. He's imminent. That is where we ended last week. Now, how are we doing? I had an emergency uh, request here for John Bockelman and Ben to get the, uh, how are we doing on the handouts? We got handouts for everybody? Okay, last week's handout should say on it, uh, September 10th at the top, if you brought it back with you, good. If you still need one, maybe share uh, one for two of you, just hold up your hand. I'll spend about 10 minutes on the rest of last week's handout, and John will get one out to you here. Thanks, John. And we Still got a bunch of bunch of people, needy people over in the needy people over in the right section over here. <laughs> okay, I'm going to go on while we're out. So now, why did God make the universe? Um, you know, I think about what, why does anything exist. Well, if people don't read the Bible, I don't think they have a good answer for that. They wonder why there are why anything exists in the universe. They maybe make up purposes for it. But uh, the real purpose is uh, that God created the universe to show his glory and, and that it would, it would honor him and reflect something of his character. So God's entire creation is, enti is intended to testify of his greatness. So Isaiah 43, 7 talks about human beings, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. He made us for his glory whom I formed and made. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. We talked about, you look up in the sky at night, on a dark night, northern, if you drive north of the city, you see 5,000 stars. Those are wonderful. Every one of those is, well, our sun is an average-sized star. Sun is a, how many Earths could you put inside the sun? A million. 
a million Earths could fit inside the diameter of the sun. Uh, it, that's amazing, amazing inside. You know, the Earth is pretty big. You try to fly around, it takes a long time. Try to fly back from Africa, it takes a long time. But a million Earths, not 24 hours to get, yeah. <laughs> Uh, 24 hours on the plane, my goodness. You got enough leg room there, Kitty? <laughs> Tell Don to move forward a little bit, let you stretch your legs. <laughs> so the Earth is big. You put a million Earths inside the sun. The sun's an average star. You look up in the sky, you see 5,000 stars. The heavens declare the glory of God. How many stars are there in the Milky Way galaxy that we're part of? You can see 5,000 with the naked eye. But there are 400 billion in the Milky Way galaxy. And that's one galaxy. And so far, astronomers have discovered about 100 billion galaxies. Oh, my goodness. Not only is the sun the size of Earth, it's got, it's got the energy of thousands of atomic bomb explosions going off every second. All the energy ever produced by any energy source on Earth Throughout the history of the Earth, that's how much energy is produced by the sun every second. It's an incredible amount of energy, and how powerful did God have to be to make all that, to make billions upon billions of those, innumerable. The heavens declare the glory of God. So he made it to say, look at my power. Look at my power. Look at my greatness. Look at my wisdom in creating it all. Look at my skill. And then we talked about cells, these uh, you know, uh, 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 mil uh, uh, billions of cells in our human body, each one um, uh, a very intelligent little factory making itself, uh, repeating, making all sorts of products, taking in materials, sending out materials like a little city almost. And uh, every cell in your, my body is different from every cell in John's body, every cell in Sandy's body, because we've got our own DNA. We didn't just create kind of, you know, like like you, like you make one cell phone and then you make a bunch of other cell phones all like it. He, he created all these working cells, but everyone different in every single human being and every animal and every plant, all these living cells. Incredible. Uh, so the universe shows God's wisdom and skill and power, and, uh, and I'm sure we haven't discovered all of the intricacy of it yet. The heavens declare the glory of God. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. <clears throat> Why? Because you created all things. So we should give him glory and honor. We should worship him because of the excellence of his creation. And uh, I, I, wore, I went to reach in my closet and I figured I'd take out a shirt with Hawaiian flowers on it, just kind of as a reminder that God made flowers. And uh, that, I see, now Glenn's got one on back there. And um, Dave has one. We've got a lot of, yeah, John's got, you've got nature things on your, Norma's got flowers on her clothes here. So uh, and we're just kind of a reminder of look at all the beauty that God made when he created the universe as well. Um, and all those things are intricate. So he's worthy of your sweet glory. And everything we look at, we walk out the door, we should be saying in our hearts, I suppose. We should be saying like the angels say when they, when they look at the earth, the whole earth is full of his glory. And, and we should just be worshiping God by everything that we see in the grocery store to buy, to eat, all the fruit and vegetables. The, uh, and the things that we look at outside, just amazing things that God made. And we should, we should, um, we should honor him for that. And so that's, that's the reason he made the creation, uh, for, to testify of his greatness. <clears throat> and it shows great 
God's great power and wisdom far above anything that could be imagined by any creature. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, Jeremiah 10, 12. By his understanding stretched out the heavens. So it's not just power <clears throat> to make a big explosion, a big bang, but it's power directed in wise results. So that there are things that are good that come out of it and things that are intricately connected and wisely did. So then God didn't need to create the universe. Uh, it was a totally free act of God. Uh, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Now we, we want to guard against ever thinking that God had to do something outside himself. No, it was a free choice that he made, and he did it uh, for his own good purposes. And Trent, that projector keeps deciding to turn off on me and back. I don't know. It just does that on Sunday mornings, I think. Um, then God created the universe to take delight in his creation, especially to the extent that it shows forth various aspects of, of his character. And so um, you see God's creativity. You see his delight in beauty. Uh, you see his skill and wisdom. You, you see his love for us and that he sends rain for the crops to grow and plants grow and so we can have food. Um, and, uh, and not only food, but food that tastes good. I'm just eating some of the poppy seed uh, cake or whatever back there, and then I just had to go back to another one because it tasted so great. And uh, uh, thanks to whoever, and, and actually I should tell you, that we've got more food back there than we've had for a number of weeks. And so um, in the middle of class, if you get really hungry, just kind of walk to the back and, uh, and take a little bit more. And on your way out, be sure to help yourself to another snack. Uh, but but so there we're showing uh, when when something tastes good we should say Lord you love me thank you see so showing something of God's character his love his wisdom not only but the things that are good for us also taste good an apple has great flavor or a banana or you know anything like that so he's wise in how he's made the world and and it shows us Jesus taught from the you know the flowers consider the flowers or the birds God cares for them so he should care for us. It, it, uh, it shows us all uh, many, many aspects of God's character if we just think about nature. So he, and, and he takes delight in it. And when you go, I don't know if you've ever been to Hawaii and gone snorkeling and you've seen these amazing colors of fish or you go to an aquarium and see all these fish, incredible different colors. And I think it's just like God saying, oh, well, I think I'll make one with stripes going up and down that are black and white. Mm, I think I'll take one with purple stripes. And they go, oh, I think I'll make one with polka dots and stripes together. And they go like this. And then all these amazing different bright colors of fish. And I think God just said, I think I'm going to enjoy those different colors of fish. And some of them swim, you know, different ways. And it's just, it's unbelievable, the, the amazing skill and wisdom that is shown uh, in the creation. And God takes delight in it. And he looks at it and he says, oh, I... I I take delight in it. It's good. This explains human creativity because he made us particularly to show what he is like, and we reflect his character. We talked about that in previous weeks. In many of the things that we do, like I'm speaking right now. Why? Because God is a God who communicates, and he made us so that we can communicate. God speaks words. He made us to be able to speak words. You can understand my words. Why? Because God is a God who understands, and he made us to be able to communicate. And when we understand each other and communicate, we have interpersonal relationships and community. Why? Well, that demonstrates an attribute of God. That demonstrates interpersonal interaction. That's in the Trinity. We just go on and on. Every single action we do has some reflection of characteristics of God. So he made us to reflect uh, his character and, and so we like doing things that imitate him, and we like doing creative things, art or music or literary skills 
or just just building things with your hands. Bob Mayhew, where are you? You 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 build cabinets. You build uh, you do electrical. You you kind of do home kind of things. But when you get done, it feels good. Yeah. When 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 you make something and it works or it looks great, um, and uh, it, that's human creativity. Uh, and God made us to delight in that. Margaret made a wonderful, wonderful meal a couple nights ago. We had people over for dinner. And, uh, oh, man, that's human creativity. If I'd have tried, it would have been awful. <laughs> and then we enjoyed it again last night. We had leftovers. I said, Margaret, this is so good. Why? Because he made us to, to delighting things and creating things. So, uh, so he made the universe just so he could say, like a painting, oh, there it is, it looks really nice, but... It's something that lives and goes on, and it keeps making more of itself. And so, again, um, it shows more and more of God's excellence. So the whole universe, everything we look at, we should be saying, thank you, God, for that. Thank you for that. Look at what that shows you of, of you. Look at what that shows us of you again and again. Then the universe that God created, this is related to this, was very good. And so uh, if God created the universe to show his glory, we would expect that it would fulfill its purpose. It would show his glory, and it does. At the end of each stage of creation, those days of creation, God saw what he had done, and it was good. And so God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And in each of these verses, after God this, and he did this, he saw that it was good. He did this, and he saw that it was good. And I think there's a sense, it's just reminding us that God is enjoying this. He said, there, let there be light, and there was light. Let the earth, and he says, oh, that's good. And then let the earth bring forth uh, plants according to their kind. And then, pow, they're all these. He says, oh, that's good. They're beautiful. I enjoy those. I think I can delight in his creation. Then let the earth bring forth uh, living creatures according to their kinds. And, and all of a sudden, you got all these horses and cows and elephants and giraffes and rabbits and mice and everything. And God looks at it all and he says, oh, that's good. And he, and he said, and he, it's almost like God is smiling and enjoying when he makes something, then he says, oh, that's wonderful. And then he makes man, male and female, in his image. And then he looks at all that he had made, and it doesn't just say it was good. God looked at it, and he said it was very good. So he's taking, I think, more delight in the completion of creation with us in it than in anything else. And he's looking at us and saying, wow, this is very good. Look, I made John. I made Kathy. This is good. <laughs> I mean, that's. I think there's that sense when God takes delight in His creation. So, at the end of the six days of creation, God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good, very good. Now, we might wonder. Well, okay, Adam and Eve sinned. There was a curse. There was uh, thorns and thistles came forth from the ground. And, uh, well, maybe the earth isn't good anymore because the result of sin and the curse. But it's interesting that even though sin came into the world and even though uh, there is some distortion so that the material universe isn't what it could be, and I, I think the arid nature of the desert, beautiful as it is, is part of that. And I think eventually when God removes the curse from the earth and the thorns and thistles aren't there anymore, then... Uh, it'll be even. It'll be like a Garden of Eden, like we can't imagine, uh, even um, even here in this in the Sonoran Desert. And uh, the desert plants that are beautiful now will become even much more beautiful and productive. But uh, still, even though sin is in the world, the material creation is still good in God's sight. 
And now this has to do with how we think of creation. There's always just a tendency in, in the faith. There's this tendency to thinking, oh, material, that's evil. That's materialism. And I know there's a temptation there. But basically, the viewpoint that the Bible takes toward the creation, even the fallen creation, the viewpoint is that it's still good in God's sight and should be seen as good by us as well. 1 Timothy 4, 4 to 5, for everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. And that's in the context of people who are saying, don't eat this, don't eat that. And Paul says in the last time there'll come doctrines of demons and people who command abstinence from foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving, like poppy seed, lemon poppy seed cake and things like that. And people say, don't eat that, don't eat that. Everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. As I told you, I was at Biola a week ago and... Uh, a student picked us up at the airport, and we and it was just about 12:30 or 1 o'clock. And so he said, "Have you had lunch?" And I said, "No." And he said, "Oh, they gave me some money to buy you lunch. What do you like?" And I said, "I like all food." <laughs> <laughs> well, that's easy. So uh, I think we found a Wendy's, or I don't know what we. So uh, except probably anchovies, I'm not real fond of anchovies. And he said, ah, that's not a problem. We're not going for anchovies today. All right, so everything created by God is good, and we should be thankful for it uh, when we partake of it. This frees us from a false asceticism. Asceticism, this idea that we shouldn't enjoy anything. We should just make life miserable for ourselves. Uh, this frees us from a false asceticism that sees the use and enjoyment of the material creation as wrong. In fact, now here's the fuller uh, expansion of that passage. The Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. What do these deceitful spirits, what do these demons want to do? They want to make you think that any joy you have in the creation is wrong. Anytime you're having fun in the creation, don't do that. That must be sinful. That's doctrines of demons, Paul says. So I'm just about to get another bite of that. You know, <laughs> probably since I've had those, I should probably take something a little healthier, a piece of fruit back there, which also tastes really good. But anyway, doctrines of demons, through the insincerity of liars, whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage. If you want to be really holy, don't get married. I mean, see, that there is that doctrine, who forbid marriage, and because, oh, marriage, that's your physical body, that's the material creation, that's not spiritual. See how that doctrine could sneak in. And uh, But Paul says, this is doctrines of demons who forbid marriage, to say nobody should get married. Of course, that, that religious view won't last more than a generation. <laughs> forbid marriage. <laughs> no. And they require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So we can be thankful for all of those things. If you excuse me a minute, I just have to get a little... <laughs> Yeah. This, no, 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 I'm not going to tell you. Oh, we have. Okay, this is a little bit healthier. These are grapes. These are really good. So I'm eating this grape, and it tastes great. Oh, look at somebody brought me some. <laughs> Now, how can I do this for the glory of God? I can say, thank you, Lord, for the sweetness of this. It reminds me of the goodness of you. It reminds me of the sweetness of prayer and fellowship with you. 
reminds me that you are a good God. You could have just fed me with cat food <laughs> for my whole life, and out of a threat of starvation, I'd probably eat it, but <laughs> that's what our cat eats. He eats cat food. He seems like it. So, but instead, I've got a wonderful variety of foods that look pleasant, they taste really good, and they're nourished. Um, and yeah, I think you should generally eat healthy foods and just occasionally, like on Sunday morning, have um, extra things. Uh, well, I won't get into that. I'm joking. Um, so, but I'm saying, but but there should be in my heart, we, should, we pray before meals saying thank you, but I think there should be in our hearts just a sense of, God, you have made such a wonderful creation. I just thank you for the privilege of living in this creation and that I can partake of these foods. And even more so for those of us who live in a country with such abundance and wealth. We don't face famine. We don't face starvation. And we have just an incredible abundance of varieties of foods um, available to us so often. So God made the creation for us to enjoy. And what we say about food, <clears throat> we can also say about hiking. Where's Wanda? In the mountains. Uh, Wanda leads hikes, and you, you could enjoy not only the visual aspect of it, but just the terrain and just being out in the outdoors. Hiking, um, bike riding, um, swimming. That's, God made water so up. Or made us so that we float. I mean, that's nice. And, and enjoy, um, what else? Oh, here's something else that's really good. Breathing. <laughs> We're not short of breath. We're just, thank you, Lord. You made air, so it allows us to... I mean, just the, there's such excellence in the creation. And our hearts, as we think about it, should be just overflowing. So, um, oh, how about cars? I think that's a part of, that's made from creation. And we can drive. We can go to the store. We can go visit friends. Go to church. Thank you, Lord, you put the materials in the earth that people can make cars with and so I can drive and that the car works. And all that energy from the sun then went into uh, plants that died and formed petroleum that got refined and made gasoline. And so I go to the pump and I pump into my car a whole bunch of energy from the sun in the form of gasoline that's compact and liquid and portable. Oh, what a wise thing that was. So I can drive or fly 24 hours from Africa. Thank you, Lord, for thinking of how these petroleum products can store sun, the energy of the sun. And so I get that solar energy that goes through in the form of gasoline, goes into my car. And I can drive it up to Flagstaff if I want. And come back. Amazing. Thank you, Lord, for a good creation. So am I getting, is that making sense? The things we take for granted are cause for great thanksgiving to God. So that's, um, that's the material creation. Though the material creation can be misused, and you can eat too much of that poppy seed cake, and it's not healthy for you, we must not let the danger of abusing God's creation keep us from positive, thankful, joyful use of it. 1 Timothy 6.10 warns, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So we can get so taken up with it, we forget God and put that first. That's wrong. But Paul goes on in 1 Timothy 6 to say, the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor set their hopes on uncertainty of riches. And, you know, those of us who live in 21st century United States, our standard of living in terms of homes, methods of transportation, clothing, and everything, 
we all have um, what would have been to a first century person what all what would have been thought of as immense wealth. We really do. And so uh, not in order to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. That's where our heart is, to set it on God who richly provides us with everything to make us miserable. No, he provides us with everything to enjoy. And so we are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Okay, and if, and if you have the freedom not to have to work uh, just all of your life every week and every day to, just to stay alive and earn food, if you have the freedom to do that, Paul says, well, be rich in good works. Be rich in doing good for others and spend time doing that. And many of you, many of you do that as I look around the room. I know you do. Okay, that's uh, creation. So I'll stop there just for a moment. Any questions on that or interaction so that we go to creation, scripture, and science? John? I love the part where you went over it real fast, but I love the part where it says in uh, Jeremiah that you stretched out the heavens. Oh. And, and that's a biggie that we just don't we brush over, but do you think that's talking about? I mean, we have the Doppler effect, we, have, we know that everything's expanding. And of course, science oh. uses it as a uh, oh. as a big bang. Yeah, there is no big bang. That's that was that's not true. And even science is okay. starting to collapse on that whole idea. Okay, but the stretching out of the heavens. I mean, I can just imagine God just taking it, pulling it out, and it's still moving. Okay. And when He pulled out from from where it all started, wherever He started, and then pushed it out, it's still moving out. And they can't explain that, of course, but they come up with a big bang. Okay, so uh, um, John is asking about Jeremiah 10:12. It, it is He who made the earth by His power, who established the world by His wisdom, and by His understanding stretched out the heavens. And and you're saying you're seeing in there that that right now scientists have discovered the universe isn't staying still; it's expanding. And and um, and is there a reference to the idea of stretching out the heavens? And I haven't really looked at that verse in detail. I'm not sure, but it is expanding. And apparently, the speed at which it's expanding is increasing. In fact, a fellow who was in college with me got a Nobel Prize for proving that it is increasing in its speed of expansion. Yeah, so is that, isn't that stretching out? Looks like it, doesn't it? Looks suspiciously like it. Okay, Pammy? We were up in Sedona this past week, and, and I, I was so grieved to see a, a bumper sticker. This car was displayed with a lot of new-age bumper stickers. But, but one of the stickers that uh, profoundly troubled me for this individual was, I'm a tree-hugging, dirt-worshipping pagan. And it is such a good thing that you, uh, because well, I haven't ever heard a, a pastor or chief expound on, uh, to, the, to the degree that you have, on the goodness of creation. Mm -hmm. And to bring that in our four minds of, of how good God is, mm -hmm. but also how good and gracious of God to give us right thinking in in Christ, that we look at these things and that we do not worship them, but that we worship Yeah, them good. Them. Yeah. Pammy is just talking about, I say for the tape, Pammy. Pammy is just talking about uh, that she saw up in Sedona um, a bumper sticker uh, that was not in a church parking lot, I, <laughs> that said, I'm a tree-hugging, dirt-worshipping pagan. Well, and that's sad, because, you know, dirt doesn't really answer your prayers very well. and <laughs> doesn't delight in your worship. I mean, in a way, that's, that's a sad bumper sticker, because there's despair. But uh, by contrast, 
Pammy saying she's so thankful that God's given us a, the permission, in fact, I think a command, to enjoy the creation. He made it for us. He made it for us. He said to have dominion over it. And so it's, it's to be used by us. And uh, so I'm, I'm just thankful for that. Good, good. And I think we can enjoy it more than any non-Christian can enjoy it because we have a deep sense of moral rightness in the enjoyment of it, and we know that our enjoyment of it is itself glorifying God because it's fulfilling the purpose for which God made the universe. He wants us to enjoy it and thank him for it. So then, in addition to having fun enjoying it, we're also fulfilling our eternal purpose of glorifying God. And he's pleased with us enjoying it. Oh, my goodness. He made it. He gave us everything. He richly furnishes us with everything to enjoy, and we do it with thanksgiving to Him. And that's right. Amazing. That's morally good. <laughs> that makes it even more fun. All right. Anybody want to get another grape or two before I go on? Okay. Now the relationship between Scripture and the findings of modern science. Often sincere Christian faith and strong the Bible have led scientists to the discovery of new facts about the universe, Isaac Newton, Galileo, Johannes Kepler, etc. And when I talked about the history of Cambridge University and the Christian influence, oh, three, four months ago, it was amazing how many Christians, uh, William Harvey discovering the circulation of the blood, and um, some, I've forgotten the guy's name, who discovered the electron, another guy, uh, but, but uh, Sir Isaac Newton certainly, who wrote commentaries on a number of books of the Bible, but is considered the greatest scientist of all time, a, prof a deeply committed Christian, seeing in the universe evidence of order put there by God. So he discovered such small things as calculus, gravity, um, light, uh, you know, how it, it, it breaks into different colors, and uh, how, and, and how the, and calculated the solar system and its um, revolution around the sun and all of that. I mean, and just doing all that for the glory of God and praising God in it. And so, um, and uh, Mike Mobley back here talked about the nature of time and working as a physicist and doing it as a Christian. And it's another, and uh, uh, Keith uh, working at Mayo, and I mean, a number of you in, uh, in the science, well, I'm start talking about people in the sciences now and uh, talk about Wendy Bachelman working as a nurse. I can go around the room and see many of you in the, in the scientific community working out of a sense of glory to God um, and uh, honoring God and what you do and what you learn, what you discover, and how you care for people. So that's been the case throughout history. Many scientists have done their, uh, this wonderful work by saying, God made this, now let me see if I can figure out how it works. And they discover wonderful things. As in the case of Galileo's theory that the sun is the center of the solar system, sometimes on closer examination of a biblical text we can find that our Prior interpretations were incorrect. It's interesting, sad. Um, uh, Galileo, well, now, see, the Reformation started in 1517 with Martin Luther. Galileo in Italy was in Roman Catholic dominated Italy. For, uh, so this was particularly the Roman Catholic Church that was resisting his idea that. Um, uh, that, that, the, that the earth rotates and it goes around the sun, resisting that, thinking that the Bible was against it, but they thought, you know, the sun went around the earth. But they had to re but Christians who believed that had to rethink it. Now, it's not true that Galileo first had that. Aristotle 
uh, thought that the uh, the Earth was round, for instance. So, and there there were earlier thinkers who thought this, but there were competing theories. But the but the the point is here when we talk about the Bible and science, we have to be careful that we don't claim more than the Bible actually says. Okay, back in mm, I don't have the exact date in the 1600s. One of the greatest Bible scholars in the world was an Irish scholar named Usher, U-S-S-H-E-R, Archbishop Usher. And he went and added all the ages, people in the Old Testament, and he put them all together and he said, Adam was created in 4004 B.C. Nobody today holds that, I don't think, because the, the, the archaeological evidence and all the dating evidence put put um, the age of, of the Earth back before 4004 B.C. on any theory, on a young Earth theory, on an old Earth theory. And so people went back and they said, you know what, there are gaps in these genealogies. Just certain people are mentioned. Some the important people are mentioned. And uh, sometimes it skips a lot of generations. So you can't really add it up to get back to a date. People thought you could, but then, they, then, then the scientific evidence of the age of the Earth kept pressing in and they said, okay, guess, guess it didn't mean to tell us the date of Adam and Eve. Okay, that was one. And again, people were saying, oh, the sun goes around the earth. And Galileo said, no, the earth rotates. And it goes around the sun. Oh, the Bible says the sun goes around the earth. No, look again at the Bible. It doesn't say. So people had to re-examine what they thought the Bible said in the light of more scientific investigation. And in fact, when they did that, then there wasn't a conflict between them. They said, okay, it's consistent to think that the earth goes around the sun and the earth rotates. The Bible isn't attempting to say anything about that. So we have to be careful we don't claim more than the Bible says. Now, creation is not something, <clears throat> when we talk about the creation and the, how the world came into being, when it came into being, it's not something that can be recreated in a laboratory experiment, nor were there human observers of it. And so um, we have to realize that Science in the sense of repeatable experiments is one thing, but science in the sense of trying to say how the creation came into being, that's a completely different thing. You can't say, oh, let's try it again and watch. It's not going to happen again. So uh, if we're convinced the only observer of these events, creation, that is God himself has told us about them, if God has told us about creation in the reliable words of the Bible, then we should pay careful attention to the biblical account if we want to know where everything came from. We say, what about these apparent conflicts between the Bible and science? And that's been a case of much controversy now. <clears throat> when all the facts are rightly understood, this is point one, when all the facts are rightly understood, there will be no final conflict between scripture and natural science. Now that phrase, no final conflict, comes from Francis Schaeffer in his book, No Final Conflict, in 1975. Some of you know about Francis Schaeffer, some of you don't. He was a, a, an American um, pastor, and then he became widely read in philosophy and apologetics and cultural trends, and he set up this place in Switzerland called Labri, means the shelter in French, and uh, hundreds and hundreds of people would come there <clears throat> who were skeptics and non-Christians, and he would talk with them and argue with them and discuss with them, and they'd become convinced uh, that the Bible was true and they would become Christians. And Randall McCauley, who spoke here, it was his uh, son-in-law, actually, and um, 
So many, many people have been influenced by Schaefer. But Schaefer wrote this very helpful book, I think, in 1975, where he thought, uh, in, in, in this little booklet, he said, well, after thinking about this a long time, I think there's room for disagreement among Christians who believe in the total truth, truthfulness of Scripture on some things. And he listed seven where he thought there was room for disagreement. First, he said, there's a possibility that God created a grown-up universe. That is, did the trees in the Garden of Eden have rings? Oh, there's a big thick tree. Let me cut it down. How old is this? Count the rings. Twenty-five. That tree's 25 years old. No, sorry, it was just created yesterday. But it was created with appearance of age because probably so, probably so, uh, probably trees. Oh, that looks like an adult dog. That dog looks like it's about two years old. How old does a dog get when it's adult? Two? Two when it's grown up? Okay. Oh, Nope, sorry, it looks like a grown-up dog. It actually is just one day old because it was created yesterday, Adam. But in the normal course of events, I just had to create some grown-up things. Okay? It didn't grow up from a puppy. It just was a whole, it was a full dog. <clears throat> and Adam and Eve, they had the appearance of age 25 or something when they were created. So in some sense, I think everybody who believes in creation thinks there's some appearance of age in the universe. And now Schaefer is saying there's a possibility that God created a grown-up universe even with perhaps the light from stars in, in place so that Adam and Eve saw stars on the first night in the Garden of Eden. Schaefer's not saying he agrees with that. He's saying there's room for Christians to disagree on that and for how, to what extent that is true. Number two, there's a possibility of a break between Genesis 1, 1, and 1, 2 or between 1, 2, and 1, 3. Now, I've got a book, Laurel. <laughs> Sorry, I just wanted to remember. Excuse me, that had nothing to do with anything else except a book for Laurel. Um, and I saw it in my briefcase. Okay, here's the break. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And here's the theory. And that lasted many years. And uh, there were all sorts of animals and creatures and demons and angels fell and there were demons on the earth and, uh, there, and uh, they rebelled and God judged them and cursed the earth. And uh, that's why we have all these dinosaur bones and everything. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the earth. So you've got a whole creation and millions of years and a fall and a judgment. And then, okay, now that's called the gap theory, a gap between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. The problem is there's no verse in the Bible that says anything about that. That's just kind of made up by people. But that gives you a long period of time. I don't agree with that view. Uh, but for Schaefer saying that's there's room for Christians to differ on that. Okay, does that make sense? <laughs> um, there's a possibility of a long day in Genesis one. Okay, and there was evening and there was morning, the first day, the second day, the third day, the fourth day, the fifth day. How long are these days? Many people say these are 24-hour days. A day means a day means a day. And there's evening and morning. Other people say. You know, those days could be thousands, millions of years long. And then you account for the long age of the earth. And Schaefer is saying there's a possibility of a long day in Genesis 1. Four, there's a possibility that the flood affected the geological data, and that gives us different estimates of how old the Grand Canyon is and things like that. Number five, the use of the word kinds in Genesis, may, Genesis 1 may be quite broad. And so... Um, here, 
Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. Does that mean species? That is the scientific classification species. Species, by definition, is something that can only reproduce with itself and can't reproduce outside of the boundaries of a species. And so could kinds, are kinds equal to species? He's saying, well, could what broader than that? And um, I, I don't know in the major animal groups if that's true, but you get down to these microscopic anim, uh, uh, living things, and possibly that, that sure could be true. Okay, and then he's saying there's a possibility of the death of animals before the fall. See, Romans 5 says, For sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men or all people because all sin. Sin came, death came into, sin came into the world through one man, death through sin. So death started with Adam. But does that mean death only of human beings? Or does it mean death in the animal world as well? And death in the plant world? And Schaefer's saying, you know, it's possible that animals just lived 20 or 30 years and grew old and died before the creation, and that death only means death of human beings. I, I really think that's possible. I'm sure it's possible with plants. It has to be. If Adam and Eve ate them, they died. Oh, I'm going to kill that tomato. <laughs> oh, there's death of a tomato. Well, there was death of a tomato before the fall. I'm sure of that. What about... <laughs> well, what about algae? What, what about these plankton that whales eat? You know, these little tiny... Don't whales eat plankton? Did whales eat plankton before? I think it's possible. Is plankton animal or is it a plant? Oh, it's a plant. What, what kind of little fish do whales eat? Brill. Okay, I think brill might have died before the fall. Whatever those are. Okay, so I think there's a possibility there. Um, he's saying he's not sure, but Christians could differ on that. And then number seven, where the Hebrew word bara, create, is not used. There's a possibility of sequence from previously existing things. Um, there are some cases where there's a later forming of things from the ground instead of just creating. Now, in, in Genesis 1, it's create, God, God created things. Okay, B, we should not fear scientific... Well, I don't know if you want to talk about any of those. I'm just kind of laying that out. Those sounded good to me. I don't agree with all of them, but I'm saying, you know what? Within the limits of believing in the Bible, I think we can have some freedom on those things. Okay? Um, well, uh, yeah. Charlie? On the long day one, yeah. did God create the plants on the third day and then the sun would start on the fourth day? Yeah. Okay. Here's the problem, Charlie says. On the long day... God created the plants on the third day and the sun, moon, and stars on the fourth day. The problem is a lot of, a lot of years without photosynthesis, millions of years. Yeah, I know, that's a problem. <laughs> yeah, but, but here's, here's um, the first day, God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God separated the light from the darkness. Now, what kind of, is that the light that surrounds the glory of God, and did that light... It surrounds God in his, his glory, or is, it, or is it some kind of light? And later there were forming of parts of, of the sun, moon, and stars, specifically other things. Um, I'm not sure, but there was light of some kind. So, I, anyway. Well, either way, it's a miracle. I'd rather believe you stole it. Yeah, okay. 
Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 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 Good. Yeah, John. Here's my question: Is the word "day" used in Genesis in Hebrew the same throughout the whole Old Testament? Yes. The, is the word "day" in Hebrew? It's the word "yom" y o m, and it is the word that's used throughout the whole Old Testament for day. Twenty-four hours. Sometimes it's used for twenty-four hours, and sometimes it's used for periods of time. We'll get to that next week, though. Oh, no, next week there's no class. In fact, that's why I'm going to talk about that. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> my, my only statement is just this. Yeah. We talked in this class for the three years I've been in it since yeah. I got here. Yeah. About the accuracy of the Bible. Yep. God means what he says. Yep. These words are to be literally translated. Yep. And then we get to Genesis, and there's all these human theories about, well, why that word doesn't mean what God said it. Yeah, okay. And it bugs Okay, okay. <laughs> John wants day to be not a long day, uh, because yeah. Well, and and that's really and I'll tell you up front, okay. Just so there's no secrets here, I'm not sure. And I I spent more time on this chapter than any of the 57 chapters in my systematic theology book, trying to figure out how old the day the Earth was, and. I'm going to talk about arguments on both sides. And it went back and forth and back and forth. And I came out not being sure. Um, well, that's where I am. But I'll, but I'll spend some, and you can argue with me about it, but uh, well, we'll get the evidence. But that's going, to be, that's going to be in a week or two. Yep, OK. A day with the Lord is a thousand years. We're getting ahead of the we're getting that car horse here. Uh, we'll come back two weeks from now to the age of the earth if we if we get okay, and the and the length of day. All right, we should not fear. Okay, here's the deal. This is a general approach to science. Christians should not fear scientific investigation of the facts of the created world, but should do so eagerly and with complete honesty, confidence. When the facts are rightly understood, they'll always turn out to be consistent with God's inerrant words in Scripture. I'm sure about that. I'm confident about that. And I'm not afraid of looking at you know, um, arguments about evolution from biological things and stuff like that. Let's look, because when we find out the facts, it's going to be consistent with the Bible eventually. Now, some people might say, objection. The Bible's only teaching us only for teaching us religious and ethical truths, not for scientific truths. But my answer is God himself speaks all the words of Scripture, and these words show no restriction on the topics that God has decided to speak about. So I don't favor the view that, oh, this is only to teach us about you know, religion and ethics, and it shouldn't teach us anything about how the universe came into being. Well, my goodness, it's talking about God. It's talking about where everything came from. Doesn't the Bible have the right to talk about that? Sure, I think it does. And so uh, now, now we're going to talk about. I'm trying to move from things that everybody agrees on to things that are, there's less dis, less agreement on. And so now I'm still doing things that I think all Christians agree on, uh, at least at some point here. Or, now, yeah, this first point anyway. Some theories about creation seem clearly inconsistent with the teachings of Scripture, and I think that these are not not possibilities for Christians to believe and hold to the complete truthfulness of the Bible. One. Secular theories. Any theory of the origin of the universe that does not see an infinite God is responsible for creating the universe by intelligent design. For instance, if, if you say to someone, where did the universe come into being? You say, well, it's a big bang. And I say, okay, big bang. Where did the stuff come from in the big bang? Well, I don't know. It just happened. Okay, so you've got no God. Then 
I think that's a secular theory that's inconsistent with Scripture. The Bible says God created it. Now, whether this big was something that was just the uh, uh, all of a sudden pow, God just out of out of nothing made everything come into existence and shoot out from uh, someplace in the universe. Sure, that's fine. Uh, but or when Darwinian evolution is thought of in a naturalistic sense, yes, I think so. Hard for me to think of it in some other sense. I'll get to that in a minute. But a secular theory is inconsistent with the teaching of the Bible. I think also that theistic evolution is inconsistent with belief in the truthfulness of the Bible. Theistic evolution is this. A uh, hundred years ago, 150 years ago, when was Charles Darwin? 1860s, 1870s, 150 years ago or so. People started reading Darwin, they say, okay, I believe that all this came about by evolutionary process, but you know what? God guided it all along the way. So I believe in evolution plus God. See, and that's why they call it theistic evolution. Whatever you scientists say about how things came about, human beings evolved from non-human, uh, uh, human-like creatures before that, and from less complex element, uh, things before that, and from very simple cell things before that, and all living beings evolved from non-living matter by time plus chance, but God guided it all that way. I think that's contradictory. I think uh, that you can't put these two together. Um, and so theistic evolution, God guided the process of evolution proposed by Darwin, though God created matter in the beginning, and people who hold this might say, perhaps God created life at the, in its simplest form and perhaps intervened to create man. Here's my objection. The randomness of evolutionary theory is incompatible with scriptural teaching on the purposefulness of God's work. Here's the deal. What drives evolutionary theory? What's the mechanism that makes it happen? It's randomness. It's random mutation, random variation. There's no plan. And so you've got all these different things changes happening in a little organism until finally one gives it an advantage and a more complex organism it goes on. But always, 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 there's no planning in it. There's no planner in it. There's no designer in it. It's just chance. It's just random. That's the driving force. That's incompatible with what the Bible says about the purposefulness of God's work in creation. Genesis 1.24, and God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. That is, he didn't create them so that they would make other things. He made them so that they would make their own kind of things. Rabbits make more rabbits, make more rabbits, make more rabbits, make a cow. No, they don't make a cow. Rabbits don't make a cow. It just, rabbits become rabbits. And frogs don't start to fly. So, I'm caricaturing just to keep you awake. You understand? All right. Give me a little freedom on that. All right. Uh, and, and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. So God said, let it do this, and it was so. Theistic evolution then would deny that. Then the driving force of all evolutionary the or theories is randomness. In contrast, God made things, every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and livestock according to their kinds. That's not random. That's each thing reproducing like itself. And everything, everything that creeps on the ground, according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. There's purposefulness in it. Theistic evolution, by contrast, would, 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 would have to say, and God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, and after 387,492,871 attempts, 
God finally made a mouse that worked. I think that God's mouses worked on the first day. Mice. <laughs> they worked on the first attempt. He didn't have to make millions of tries till he could get one that would have four legs instead of two and a half or something like that. See, and they would have a mouse. So it could, it, no, he made a mouse. It was a good mouse right at the beginning. It, it didn't. It didn't need all this randomness. So. If we say, but then, but then somebody said, "Oh, God stepped in," and finally, after 387 million tries, He decided to step in, and then the mouse worked. Well, what are you doing then? You bring in God when you need Him, just to make something that works. And if you say that God intervened in the evolutionary process, guiding it at points, you no longer have evolution at all. It's no longer random. Okay, so then you you really you can't be an acceptable evolutionist and say, "Oh, God just intervened here and there." Because then it destroys the theory of evolution. That is the, the heart of it, which is random mutation or chance mutation. So I think it's inconsistent. Another objection to theistic evolution is that God's word brings immediate response. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. For he spoke, and it came to be. Not after millions of tries. He spoke, and it happened. He commanded, stood firm. God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruit trees bearing fruit. And it was so. God speaks. Pow. There you've got an apple tree. Pow. You've got an orange tree. It just, he speaks and it happens. Okay? God made plants and animals to reproduce according to their kinds, suggesting that God created many different kinds of plants and animals. He didn't create just one little living being and then it evolved. He created many different kinds. God's role is present and active in creating and forming every living thing, a fact hard to reconcile with the kind of oversight of evolution proposed by theistic evolution. I think theistic evolution really has this deistic view that God is very far removed from the universe. But the Bible's view is God is continually involved with the universe. Psalm 139 with us, You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. There's God involved intimately in the acts of ongoing uh, process of creation, even in human beings. Who, who has made man's mouth? Who made him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Exodus 11. Ma Matthew 6, uh, 30. God clothes the grass of the field. Will he much, much more clothe you? There's God actively involved, not just the first blade of grass that was created, but always maintaining it. The, the young lions seek their food from God, Psalm 104, 21, God's active involvement. That seems inconsistent with theistic evolution. Another objection to theistic evolution is the special creation of Adam and Eve from him. Adam and Eve possessed highly developed linguistic, moral, and spiritual abilities from the moment they were created. They're talking to God. They're knowing they shouldn't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They're receiving commands from God. This isn't just caveman learning two or three words. This is an intelligent, articulate human being. The New Testament understands Adam and Eve to be historical figures, not just myth. So Luke goes from, from um, uh, Jesus back through all the way back through you know, uh, David and Abraham and oh, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, of God, all the way back to Adam in one line. And then Acts 17:26, he made from one man every nation of mankind. That's seeing Adam as a historical person. Romans 5:14, death reigned from Adam to Moses. Those are viewing Adam as a historical person. And many died through the one man's trespass. Adam is a real historical person. 
that one man's sin. He's a historical person, and he's compared to Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. The New Testament clearly views Adam as an individual man, a historical person who lived in space-time history. And then there are many scientific problems with evolutionary theories, and that means that theistic evolution is depending on something that has a lot of problems with it. I'm going to have to go into more problems with evolution next week, but just some hints of it here. Those who claim to be forced to believe in evolution because of the scientific facts leave no other option. Uh, because the scientific facts leave no other option, have probably not considered the data on the other side. And I remember talking, when we were, I was in graduate school in England, and uh, just in our apartment, this friend of mine, uh, Harry, was just finishing a PhD in biology. He was not a Christian. We were talking one day. He said, well, Wayne, hasn't the evolution disproved the Bible? Hasn't evolution disproved the Bible? And I said, no, I don't think so. And he said, well, oh boy, everything I've heard it has. And, and, and I said, well, let me get you a book. And, I, and I'd heard about this book by a microbiologist, uh, Problems with the Theory of Evolution. The guy wasn't a Christian, but I just went and got the book anyway. And, and Harry looked at it. He said, oh, yeah, I recognize that. He's a really respected scientist. And uh, so he read through it, and he gave it back to me. He said, I guess you're right. There are a lot of problems with evolution that I didn't know about. Here was finishing a PhD at Cambridge University in microbiology, totally unaware of the scientific objections to evolution, because he'd just been fed the party line throughout his education. And so uh, they probably haven't considered the data on the other side. Now, what has happened uh, in, the, in the last 15 or 20 years, this intelligent design movement uh, with uh, Michael Behe and Philip Johnson and others has made much more progress in marshalling amazing, amazing evidence um, in support of uh, you need to create an intelligent designer. Well, I'm going to have to stop there. I'm going to have to stop there, and we'll pick up next time with more problems in the theory of evolution. Just any one, without asking me any more questions, I'm John, I love your questions, but no more about the age of the earth right now or the length of days. Any, any other comment just on what we've talked about so far? Where did Charles Darwin go to school? Where did Charles Darwin go to school? I don't know. Cambridge. Did he? Yeah. Cambridge. Oh, I was afraid that was true. He went to Cambridge. Well, it happens. <laughs> Yeah, okay, yeah, Jim. Did Darwin consider himself a Christian? I think for much of his life, uh, but I don't know more details about it. So, you know what, I'm feeling the sense of, I'm feeling the need to not abuse our time here, and I'm a minute over. Let me let me pray, and we're going to have to go. Come back. And then, now, now, next week, no class. And so two weeks from today, I'll do more about evolution. Three weeks from today... We'll talk about the length of days in Genesis and the age of the earth. Okay, let's pray. Oh, Lord, what an amazing creation you've given us. And we thank you. And how amazing a way you have created us, Lord. And what amazing bodies we have and minds and uh, skills. And we thank you. We praise you. All this is from you. What do we have that we have not received? Nothing, Lord. All is from you, and we give you thanks. Lord, throughout this week now, stir up in our hearts again and again thanksgiving to you and even awe and reverence at the amazing creation that you have made for us. We thank you for it. Amen. See you in two weeks. <laughs>